In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy now has decades of research support for a wide range of emotional and behavioral disorders. Unfortunately, it is rarely provided as intended, and due to its popularity, many mental health clinicians profess to have expertise in CBT, but fail to even understand or provide the most basic components. In today's episode of Radically Genuine, we asked Dr. McFillin to discuss CBT and what somebody seeking cognitive behavioral therapy should expect. I don't believe people even know what therapy is supposed to look like. See, I blame Sopranos <laughs> because Sopranos is my basis for what a, a therapist and a uh, client relationship is. And, and that went on for, I don't know, how many seasons? Quick story. Okay. Because... So when I was in my uh, my doctoral program, I went to a cognitive behaviorally oriented doctoral program, but my I got matched at an internship site where it was predominantly psychodynamic. And this was during the time that Sopranos was out there. And I remember sitting at lunch one day. Um, really, Before you go, it, psychodynamic, you got to explain. Yeah. <laughs> so, so psychodynamic would probably refer to more like Freudian of origin and... Um, a lot about what your the problems that you're experiencing today have uh, origins dating back to certain developmental periods when you're when you're younger mm -hmm. and, and and some of your mental suffering occurs outside your conscious awareness and so the idea of really you know exploring um, back to childhood in most cases and then trying to look for developmental traumas and so forth. And the act of, of like talking about them or experiencing, feeling them provides okay. gathering some insight okay. then can change yeah. behavior. Anyway, I remember sitting there at, at lunch and then just kind of making fun of the Sopranos uh, therapy because I thought it was really bad therapy. And um, I got a really negative tone from everybody there who was, you know, critical of my cognitive behavioral approach and how real therapy looks like something that goes into depth to that degree. Um, and, you know, at that, at that time, you're really exposed to the biases that exist within our field and how many people don't really understand what cognitive behavioral therapy is. What makes CBT probably, you know, effective is, is that it is kind of an umbrella term. And there's, a, there's been a lot of research trials that have kind of validated its effectiveness with specific populations. So, for example, Sean, you come to me, you know, with depression you know, my next client who's ex who's experiencing bulimia could be experiencing something much, you know, much different, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, the, the approach to be able to help somebody overcome bulimia, obviously the interventions and the structure are going to be different than someone who's, who's depressed. Okay. So, CBT is an umbrella term that kind of validated inter interventions to be able to treat those specific conditions. Now, the problem out there is some of the origins of cognitive behavioral therapy started with what's called cognitive therapy, which was, you know, Aaron Beck and others who, who identified the role of our own thinking in um, kind of emotional distress and suffering. 
Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, what that has led to is in the modern time as people think about cognitive behavioral therapy in the terms of original cognitive therapy, distorted thinking. So CBT has become, you know, almost this brand because it's validated by research. People in the mental health field believe that they have to administer CBT, but really it becomes this dumbed down approach. I call it CBT for dummies, where they're only looking at a person's thinking or thoughts. All right. If I don't understand what the normal traditional cognitive behavioral therapy is, how do you know what dumbed down version is? How do you know that you're sitting with someone that, you know? Yeah. I mean, all of the attention is going to be on the way you think about events with the assumption that if you can change the way that you're thinking about something, it has this impact on how you feel and how you act. Mm. Okay. Now let me correct what it is in actuality. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy from a simple model is just the idea that our thinking, our behavior, and our emotions influence each other. And the idea of the cognitive aspect or the thinking about is less actual about distorted thinking and more about biases and biases and attention. Mm -hmm. And it's not about telling you your thoughts are wrong or they have to be corrected. It's this idea of bringing attention to the way that you're, you're thinking about so situations. Are you, are you trying to teach people how to be conscious of how they're feeling and why they may be feeling it? Or are you trying to teach them how to, to understand bias? Well, these, they're both parts of it, right? It's this idea of bringing attention and awareness to, and we're just talking about the cognitive piece, right? Uh-huh. So there's cognitive behavior, it's cognitive behavioral therapy, which I'll get into, but what, what I want to, what I'm getting to right now, what I, what I think is really important for our audience is many people believe that they've received cognitive behavioral therapy just because there's some idea of attention to thinking, which has become the okay. dumbed down version mm-hmm. of, of CBT. So in fact, a lot of people feel invalidated that, well, you're telling me I feel this way and it's my fault and it's just, and it's just my thinking that needs to be corrected. You see how simple that is? Right? And that's it's just not accurate. So when we say it's an umbrella term, we're talking about an umbrella of interventions to be able to target factors that are influencing or maintaining your problem. So let, let's say that you're, you're depressed and, and a lot of the factors we've identified is that you're lonely mm-hmm. and you don't have strong, intimate, connected relationships. That might take us down a road about fear of rejection and avoidance of meeting new people. And see, that would be an example of factors that are influencing why you're not feeling, why you're feeling the way that you're, that you're feeling. And so the treatment is going to be active. It's going to be engaged. Okay. Now to be able to um, provide CBT, and if it's going to be relatively short term, and what does that mean? I just think a lot of our, you know, in, in doing our research here at our practice, most of our sessions fall between like 16 and 25 sessions. For okay? the complete? The complete treatment. Okay. Um, and so See, if, that's, that's what I'm surprised by that. Cause I, in my mind, the idea of like a, a normal therapist client relationship is sometimes it goes on for years. Well, you know, it does. And in a lot of traditional mental health treatment, it's less problem focused, less coping oriented. And it just becomes, it becomes a long relationship of exploration. So the, the active and goal focused nature of, of the treatment requires a certain structure. So when you do come in for treatment, Um, we're going to ask that you as a client become prepared with areas for focus. Um, I want you to be prepared and I'm going to be prepared for the session. 
so much so that we're going to create an agenda in the beginning. And this is because we value time mm-hmm. and we don't want you to waste an hour with kind of mindless discussion about what's going on with your week with the hope that you would, it takes you somewhere that's productive. Okay. Right. There's a focus to this and we're going to collaborate together, try to bridge session to session and we're going to have a focus to it. So in that, in that beginning part of the session, we plan it out. Right? There's also going to be homework. Do you share that agenda with them prior to the, mm-hmm. the first session? In fact, we do an orientation session. Once we agree on treatment, we mm-hmm. actually do an entire orientation. Basically, I can like sum it up like, how do you maximize therapy? Yeah. How right? long do those sessions last, those orientation sessions on average? It's going to be one session, okay. and our, our typical sessions are about you know 50 minutes to an hour. Yeah. Um, but I believe personally that in order for the therapy to be effective, it can't just be coming in and talking to me for one hour a week. It's going to take between session practice and homework. So even if we're in an initial you know, formulation stage where we're gathering information, we're going to provide homework to self-monitor. Wait, I'm paying you. Why are you giving me homework? I could already see people saying you're supposed to, you're the doctor. You're yeah. supposed to. You know. Absolutely not. No, that, that's a fallacy. And if you're going to make change, change is hard. So we send that message up front. So we're going to, in the, in the very beginning, let's say you're coming in for, I don't know, abusing alcohol or mm-hmm. maybe you're binge eating and purging, whatever. You know, we're going to ask that you like monitor the frequency of that. And we're going to kind of understand it in context. So we're building a formulation, as I said before, about all the factors that are influencing the problems because we're going to try to change behavior. Now, there could be many factors that are influencing and maintaining problems in behavior. In some cases, like we as human beings do things that we think work for us. So we might be acting in a certain way to get a reaction or response from our own environment. But obviously, there could be much better ways to get a, you know, a, a more a, a better response. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we do bring attention and awareness to function of certain behaviors. But we also understand that um, whether it's avoidance or whether it's alcohol abuse or, um, you know, whether it's an eating disorder, that behavior in itself is serving you in some way or you wouldn't be doing it. So when you're tracking this over time, are you then looking for patterns and trends. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're going to like conduct something called behavioral chains, right? Chains are going to bring attention and awareness into all those things that will lead somebody to act in ways that they ultimately feel horrible about. And what you realize is that often these behaviors serve a function in the moment to help somebody feel better. So um, like, even if you're depressed and you like isolate or avoid, you are protecting yourself from exposing yourself out there into the world, right? So there's some self-protection about it. If you find yourself drinking too much after work, obviously maybe the alcohol itself is serving a function of relieving stress or tension or anxiety. Uh, if you self-injure, you know, cutting, burning, which you know is, is something that, that people do to regulate intense pain, they're doing it because at least in the short term, it provides some sense of relief. So a lot of uh, things that people do, they, they're doing it to, to help them in the moment. And so by talking about these things in context and learning about why they do it, then, then we have the opportunity to make changes. Now, is this all happening during the evaluation phase? No, it's a, it's a process, right? Okay. So it's going to evolve over time. Once 
though that initial homework is building self-monitoring and understanding, you're building that formulation and you're doing it collaboratively with the client. See, when this happens, when this prompts this, you're responding like this. And you're really working together and I'm an active part of the process. So, you know, some of the, the problems with traditional talk therapy is the therapist can be a, a, you know, very passive in this process, just facilitating kind of dialogue and conversation. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's not overly helpful and it's time consuming. Instead, you know, I've dedicated my entire life to learning about people and how change occurs. So I want to bring that expertise into the room to work with my client in order to make lasting changes. And again, it's a coping model. So we're going to try to improve the way that people are coping with their life as it is. Is there, as the, as the therapy goes on, weeks go by, mm-hmm. is there something that, yeah, it's like, like a sheet, like anything that you're scoring them on, like you're seeing, how do you know, like, oh yeah, you, you're, how do you know that they're actually doing what you're asking them to do? Great question, Kelly. So one of the reasons I was attracted to cognitive behavioral therapy was the empirical nature of it, mm-hmm. right? I want to know, and I want my clients to know, that coming in to see me means that you're going to make these improvements with the goals that you initially brought into therapy. And so in other forms of therapy, it's kind of nebulous. You know, you, you come in, you do all this exploration, and sometimes the outcome is, you know, some insight or, you know, some personal growth, but you're not always able to, like, actual measure legitimate change and the problems that exist because it's, I don't believe it's just insight that leads to change. Like you have to actively change a behavior and learn new skills and new ways in order to be able to, um, in order to change these patterns. And when some of these patterns are very much ingrained, even generationally, you know, within families. So the empirical aspect of this is we try to test this out, right? So I said, initially, we're going to give some assessment measures. That's a part of it, right? We should, we should see these scores decline over time. If it's depression, your mood should improve, and a lot of these scores should decrease. But then there's other ways to measure change, right? If you were abusing alcohol and you wanted to, do, to decrease problems with drinking, we can, we can show through self-monitoring that you're decreasing the amount you're drinking and the problems associated with drinking. If you're bulimic, we can show that you're no longer binge eating or purging. So there's legitimate ways where psychotherapy and behavioral treatments are a science and we can measure that change. And that's why we see things and, you know, generally speaking, you know, in that like 15, 18 to 25 uh, session range, because there's, there's a process. You work more intensively, more intensely in the beginning, and then you begin to fade treatments mm-hmm. over time and you're just supporting, uh, you know, new skills and solving problems in new ways and changing behavior. And then you, you eventually kind of fade out to monthly sessions all the way to what we have here is booster sessions. I, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this whole thing because I, I love data and I love tracking things. And I'm, in my mind, I'm relating it back to anybody who wears a fitness tracker and maybe wants to train for a 5K or a half marathon. And you know in those first times that you go out running, you struggle, you, you power through it. But then over time, as you get closer to that actual event, you are then recognizing the improvements that you've made and your times improve. And if you're wearing a fitness tracker that follows your sleep, you're recognizing how your activities are linked to better sleep. And and all that stuff is just, it keeps you motivated and keeps you moving in in a positive direction. Is that what 
you're basically doing is you're taking um, that type of mentality and applying it into the therapy sessions? Well, that, that's part of the science of behavior change. And this is why um, I really do get frustrated. See, behavior change. I guess now it all is kind of like it's it's kind of clicking in, into place for me in terms of like modifying your behavior is all about tracking things and then following them and then recognizing mm-hmm. when those improvements are happening. And, and this this psychology is a version of that. Yeah, and today we do have updated technology to mm-hmm. be able to use self-monitoring. Most of our self-monitoring is done on, on, on different apps right now. Uh-huh. But you can see why I get frustrated with the idea that cognitive behavioral therapy is just changing your thinking. That's a, that's a part of it. Like mm-hmm. There might be a reason why you're engaging in a certain behavior based on the way that you think about it. Additionally, you could also be thinking about your own experience in a certain way that's problematic. right? Sometimes we're, ta- we're, we're helping you change the interpretation of your own emotional experience, which has been somewhat of a a theme of our recent podcast, especially when we're talking about things like a chemical imbalance theory, right? My, you know, my mood comes out of nowhere. There's something wrong with me. You know, changing that thinking pattern has a powerful impact on how a person sees their own life. Um, So it's, when we think about the range of interventions, cognitive and behavioral, like there's cognitive restructuring is the idea of thinking about things different, but then there's this idea of exposure. You know, exposure is this idea of facing things that are, have been avoided. And in that process, although maybe being flooded with intense emotions, we're learning a lot. So we are, we are learning how to regulate that fear, regulate that experience in order to change the way that we're responding to it. And in that, in that process, you learn. So, if you are experiencing social anxiety, for example, one of your biggest fears is that you're going to be embarrassed publicly, mm-hmm. right? So that belief is powerful. It's a prediction. I'm going to be embarrassed and shamed. And then because that experience is something that is, is feared, the person avoids it. And in time, that becomes their reality. So the stories or the predictions in their own mind become their reality. You're never going to gain mastery over any social situation unless you practice it. So CBT is an active process, but it also includes like learning. And the best way to learn is to do something new. And that can shift the way that you think about it. That's why I'm very strongly a behaviorist because we can kind of change these behaviors and get somebody to think about something in a new way. Will Will we focus on people's ability to observe their own thinking? Yeah, that's really important too. So it's not just about like identifying these distorted ways of thinking. It's just the act of observing thinking that is really important. So I want to bring up the distorted thinking. When people, when you bring up CBT to people, they say, well, I've heard of it. And they always go right to distorted thinking. Mm -hmm. They, oh, and even, you know, anything that's online, it's all about distorted. It's not catastrophizing is one. I can't, you can name, you go through them. But so tell us a little bit about, okay, is that is that actually a part of CBT? Let's and if it is, um, why are so many people when, I, when at least when I listen to people talk about this, they're constantly saying, "Well, I'm distorting my thoughts." That's what they're saying, like out loud. Yeah, that's where um, you know popular culture doesn't always represent like clinical reality or, or findings, and 
And when CBT has become a brand, you know, that gets communicated out there. Hey, in three easy steps, we can help you overcome mm-hmm. your anxiety, you know, and we're just going to then identify catastrophizing and fortune telling. And if you can learn this and challenge this, you've got this powerful ability to conquer your own fears, right? It becomes a, a, a sales tactic. Yeah. And people who aren't cognitive behavioral psychologists and academics who are trying to teach it, they're teaching down this watered down idea. And it's infuriating for me because I believe if you can learn how to provide cognitive behavioral as intended, you're going to help a lot of people. My, and my guess is less than 10% of people receive cognitive behavioral therapy as intended. Probably less, right? Less than 10% of people who who believe believe they received it, received it. Do you know how many times people come into my office and say, well, I figured I'd give this one more shot. I've tried CBT before and it never worked, right? But why is that? I mean, why do they go to a different psychologist who says, I I, I practice CBT and, but you're saying sometimes or majority, majority majority of the time do not do. Okay. What are the major principles that they did not perform in their previous, you know, uh, sessions? Well, first of all, there's no structured session. Okay. (laughs) There's no identifying clear behavioral goals. There's no homework that's being provided. Uh, so no, no, nobody <laughs> likes the homework. They want to establish a strong relationship with their clients, so yeah. don't give them homework to do. And I'll tell you what, it's like the act of learning how to do CBT really well is hard work. Like once you, because you're a very active, active member of the entire process, it's a lot easier to just sit there and listen to somebody for an hour. And, and homework is not just pen to paper stuff. It's forcing you to go out and engage with the public in a way that would make you feel uncomfortable. Is that right? Could be if that's what's maintaining your problems, okay. right? So remember, it goes back to earlier. We're trying to identify everything that's maintaining your problems. Avoidance is a big one. Yeah. You know, of emotional avoidance, avoidance of memories. Like, so we will expose you to memories that are being avoided because we know the science informs us that experiential avoidance maintains problems. So if I'm a shy guy and I'm lonely. And you kind of are. Sometimes. (laughs) When would you, um, would you instruct me um, at a later session that, all right, for this week, I want you to go out and ask three girls out on a date. That's been part of our treatment. Yeah. Um, if, if we're identifying that's your biggest problem. So let's say you're lonely yeah, um, and you're scared of being rejected. Well, we'd have to identify what the biggest problem here is. It's the fear of being rejected and this idea I couldn't handle being rejected. Wow. So that's like the belief. Right. Um, I can't handle being rejected. So it's not just about, um, you know, finding three girls to ask out on a date. As a married man, can that be one of my homework assignments? <laughs> <laughs> well, then you'll have more problems that we're going to have to deal with. Um, but in, in actuality, I'm going to want somebody to be rejected. Yeah. So we're going to set something up through a homework that's going to lead you to be rejected. Oh, so see, you can that, change that the... That won't happen to yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but my we'll question would be, on a more serious note, what happens if they go out and they do it and they're successful, right? And then they come to you. you. You're looking for them to be rejected so you can then have that conversation with them. But what happens if they do succeed? Does, do, well, their, do, do they, are they able to change? Well, that, that's, that's good for them in that moment, but chances are that they're going to be rejected again, even in that relationship. Mm-hmm. So just because you have somebody respond with, yes, I'll go out with you. Well, then they're going to be, the fear is going to be there about not being liked, which is ultimately going to be rejected. You know, yeah. someone's going to leave you. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're not going to like me. I'm going to be too boring, things like that. So, you know, 
clearly you have to be able to get over that idea that you couldn't handle being rejected if you're going to overcome these problems. So be rejected. Yeah. All right. Now what? Right. Are you okay? Okay. What, what does this say about you? Oh no, Sean, are you okay? I'm, I'm, I'm bringing it internal right now and I'm, I'm starting to feel like you're attacking me. (laughs) And, (laughs) And I'll tell you what, what happens in ineffective therapy is they're really afraid of, uh, exposing their clients to these things and yeah. to push their clients in this in because this it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable so you have to be, isn't that the whole point though yes you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable wow yeah our last podcast what was number one like if you want to be miserable avoid discomfort right so cbt in a way has you know has these principles they're scientifically sound principles of human resilience and, and human change and learning and we apply these principles. That's what makes it empirical. That's what, what makes it scientific. Like if you're going to put, if you're going to go into a psychotherapy and put, and it's on me as the therapist to interpret your situation about things that might've happened like a decade or more ago, where my God, the science of that tells me in a lot of ways that are, we're not really, uh, you know, sound in being able to recall information. Like, we tend to like look back at things in ways that were much different than what they actually oh, existed. Yeah. So yep. the idea of like living in that time period and using that as some measure for some of the way that you're living right now never felt accurate to me or effective. So is CBT is are there is it work for all ages? Is there a difference in the way that you'll handle you know, yeah. those? Good question. I mean. It has to be applied developmentally, right? So if you're, let's say you're an eight-year-old, and I don't work with populations this young, but I'm you know, very aware of like effective treatments for this age. Like, for example, there's a treatment called Coping Cat. Uh, that's for childhood anxiety disorders. You know, there's really important pieces to that therapy, and one of them is kind of the exposure to what is being feared or avoided. Mm. Um, and so... You're going to help people to kind of cope with that worry and that fear, but there's going to be a lot of encouragement to continue to exposure about what is being avoided. You're just doing it in uh, a manner that could be learned for that age range. So similar to, uh, you know, an elementary school teacher is trying to present information for that age group to be able to best learn. Someone who's a child therapist has to have that skill or that ability to do that. So you, you touched on something earlier about, um, you know, tracking and, and recognizing uh, the improvement. Um, does this become a lifelong tracking? I mean, what, what do you do to maintain it? After I've gone through those 18 to 25 weeks and I've learned the skills that I need, uh, I would imagine that at some point I might regress. Yeah, there's this... Uh powerful pull to return to old ways of learning or old patterns yeah. if stressors occur. And that's why I think it's important to have um, what's called booster sessions. So what happens after a course of treatment becomes uh, closed out for me and my clients, like we've completed an active course of treatment. Mm-hmm. What I tell them is I'm going to keep their file open for a period of time. And um, they're able to return for what's called booster sessions, which is really kind of the, to reinforce the learning that took place and get them back on track. And that's how, I mean, that's what we see in in behavior change. But I want to kind of go back to some of the other key components of CBT that I failed to mention at this point, because I've mentioned the homework piece, the structure piece, that's collaborative. 
Um, there's skill building over time. There's targeting problems. Everything that's that's maintaining it. There's more. There's there's more. Um, you're also monitoring your relationship with your client. So, you know, th- those, that's your homework. Well, it's part of the session. So, okay. one of the critiques of of cognitive behavioral therapy that is inaccurate is the idea that it doesn't attend to the psychotherapy relationship. And that is not true. We definitely understand that um, a person's ability to be open, vulnerable, honest, and to follow treatment recommendations is is directly correlated with the ability to trust their own therapist. We just Mm -hmm. look at it a a bit differently. So for me, um, you know, there's this old research that talks about... um, that therapy relationship correlates with outcomes, right? So it doesn't even matter what you do. doesn't matter the interventions. As long as you have a strong relationship with your, your therapist, you're going to get better. And that's, that's a lie because basically that's kind of like going backwards, right? That's like saying, if you look at someone who's made success, they're almost always had success in therapy. They're almost always going to rate their relationship to their therapist strong. And then those who, who dropped out or failed are always going to are going to rate their relationship with the therapist based poorly. on the outcome. Yeah, so it's kind of it's that old idea, you know, after this, therefore because of this, mm-hmm. you know, it's that's kind of a, a bias that exists. In actuality, what's most important in a psychotherapy relationship is the idea that you trust in your therapist's ability to help you, and so that's multiple factors, right? They have to understand you. Mm-hmm. If they don't have empathy and understanding about what you're going through, you're going to drop out. Active listening? Act, you know, more than active listening. Like it's an active listening with a high level of empathy. So you can sometimes understand what people are thinking and feeling before they even know. Yeah. Um, and then the other piece is trust in your competency, right? The client needs to trust that you have the competency to be able to help them. So if I have this strong background and knowledge of the scientific literature on how to treat obsessive compulsive disorder, for example. Well, then I can explain to my clients exposure, response prevention, the science behind it, the, what, what they can expect throughout a course of treatment. That can help somebody feel secure that their therapist knows what they're doing. And, but since these empirically validated treatments are not widely disseminated or learned in the manner in which they can be effective in being able to implement while also maintaining that relationship. We run into situations where, you know, 90% of people don't get this type of treatment. So I've read that uh, CBT does have a a very positive impact and result. Talk, talk to us a little bit about um, based off of what, you know, numbers, things like that. Talk to us about the success rate that people that actually go through with what you're saying, like actual CBT, mm-hmm. how, how do they fare? Yeah, well, f- well, first of all, we have to understand like the gold standard in research has always been randomized clinical control trials, right? And that can always be a challenge in psychology. Each person is different. So you try to standardize therapy in that way is challenging. Um, but We've tried to do it, and researchers have tr- attempted to do it, really to kind of like maybe isolate interventions and be able to measure the response over time. So these empirically validated interventions have been measured in randomized con- controlled trials. Is that the be-all, end-all of, of research? No, it's not. But it does, prov- it does prove that certain interventions have an effect and help change, um, whether it's you know decreasing depressive symptoms or 
um, you know, overcoming bulimia. So we, we do have this, this data of these standardized manual-based treatments being able to provide pretty significant outcomes, meaning, and what is significant outcomes? You know, somewhere between 60 to 75% of people um, within those trials being able to achieve remission of, of symptoms. Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a problem like that because in the real world, people aren't going to do manuals. They're not going to sit there with clients and do a manual. So it's really important you understand what are the active ingredients of that therapy and then be able to like adapt to each individual. So it's, pr- it's principle-based psychotherapy. And too many people believe CBT is just doing a manual and they say, well, my clients are going to do manuals. Well, what they're going to do, if you know that manual in your head, and you have a process to take them from the beginning to the end, and it's a principle-based treatment, and you're providing empirically supported interventions, they don't know they're, in, they're being provided yep. a manual, yeah. right? And so we ha- these, these manuals tend to outperform treatment as usual. You know, what is treatment as usual? Community-based treatment. Now, the other thing that's important, it's, it's not just about those clinical trials, Kelly. You have to, be, you have to do your own in-practice research, so you're going to have to monitor your own outcomes in a scientific way, or you're never going to know where you're struggling or where you're failing short. And we do that here in our practice with chart reviews, but each individual person is an N of one and they're their own study. So you are over time from the beginning to the end measuring. And if they're not improving or not getting better, there's a reason they're not getting better. And that's your responsibility as the clinician to be able to maybe change the formulation. You might be missing something which is often the case. People are always only going to tell you what they want you to tell you at that given time. There's been plenty of situations where I've worked with people for a good few months and they're just not making improvements. And it's not until later that they tell me, well, you know, this has happened. And that's just based on natural comfort level with Mm -hmm. another person until they can fully trust you. They're not going to disclose some of this information. Yep. Right. What are, what are the top, let's, um, wrapping this up in terms of what are the top three reasons that at CBT, you would say, these are the top things that you got to remember about this. And this is what I want you guys to take with you. Yeah. But first is that CBT is, is, is research-based. There's proven outcomes when provided as intended. Mm-hmm. CBT is active, goal-focused and skill-based. So your therapist is working collaboratively with you in an active way. There are skills and new ways of responding to problems being taught and practiced with homework. And three, you know, your progress is being monitored. It's relatively time limited. If you're not making in improvements in, in within the therapies, not demonstrating such improvements or even measuring those improvements, it's probably not a cognitive behavioral therapy. All right. Final thought. I hope people can, um, you know, take this podcast as, as intended. Um, there's a lot within our field that we need to progress on. And if you're not out there providing cognitive behavioral therapy, um, it does not necessarily mean you're not effective as, as a therapist, but I do encourage you, um, to be open to what our, our scientific literature and CBT as intended actually looks like. Because where you're feeling lost as a, as a clinician and maybe where you're as a client, where you're feeling lost in, in the therapy, CBT might have some of those answers um, because of its direct nature, its skill-based nature. Does CBT help everybody? No, 
you know, even when it's applied as intended, there's still a percentage of some of people who fail to respond to this therapy. And there's a lot to learn. That's why psychology is an evolving field and it needs to be an evolving science. And I do encourage to have more practice-based research and, and case studies to try to fill in the gaps. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening. Thank you.